quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. Happy 4th of July. The U.S. stock markets are closed today for the Independence Day holiday. In Europe, stocks are gaining today after sliding last week over recession fears. Major European indexes are all in the green at the moment. In Asia, stocks closed mixed. Japan's Nikkei gained almost 1 percent. But the Hang Seng finished a touch lower after a long weekend to commemorate the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's return to China. Russian President Vladimir Putin is praising his country's military after it took full control of the Luhansk region in eastern Ukraine. That was after Ukrainian forces withdrew from the city of Lysychansk over the weekend. President Volodymyr Zelensky was defiant when he spoke to the nation on Sunday. Ukraine does not give anything up, and when someone over there in Moscow reports something about the Luhansk region, let them remember their reports and promises before February 24th, in the first days of this invasion, in the spring and now. Let them really evaluate what they got over this time and how much they paid for it. Because their current reports will turn into dust as the previous ones. We are gradually moving forward in the Kharkiv region, in the Kherson region, and at sea, Zeminyi is a good example of this. There will be a day when we will say the same about Donbass. And Scott McLean joins us live now from Kyiv. Scott, great to see you. You know, listening to Zelensky there, he, he's really positive. But what's the reality here? How big of a military setback is the loss of Lysychansk for Ukraine? It really depends on who you ask here, Allison. If you ask Russian President Vladimir Putin, he says that his troops ought to be rewarded for their bravery because he says that they killed thousands of Ukrainians over the last two weeks in the process of taking Lysychansk, the last major city in the Luhansk region, and Severodonetsk, which was taken before that. He says that those troops deserve a rest, and frankly, the Ukrainians tend to agree. The local governor of the Luhansk area says that, uh, look, the Russians have sustained heavy losses, insane losses in his words. And so they will need to regroup, get some fresh bodies in before uh, moving on to the next part of the Donbass region. The Ukrainians say that, look, the Russians had to fight and claw for every square inch of territory that they managed to take. They they moved westward slowly but surely. And uh, they say that the Russians also sustained some very heavy losses. But the big difference, they say, is in artillery capabilities that they say they just could not match. And so President Zelensky says that, look, the Ukrainians will be back, but they're not going to go back until they have the proper weapons, they have enough artillery, they have enough capability to actually compete with the Russians. Until then, they're going to have trouble. The calculation is that, look, they could have stayed to fight. The local governor says they would have lasted maybe two weeks or so, but they would have taken losses. They would have also risked being completely surrounded, completely cut off by the Russians. So 
their calculation was, look, let's pull the troops back. At least they can live to fight another day and we can get some new, fresher weapons in there as well. Uh, another thing that went into this, this fight is the fighters themselves. The Ukrainians say that the ones who, the Russians who are fighting in this particular area were some of the most prepared all along the front line, Allison, because these are the same troops, they say, who have been fighting for this region for the past eight years. And they say that they also know the area much better, which made a big difference. So things that the Ukrainians have done in other areas, like removing the street signs to try to confuse and disorient, really didn't work that well in this case. So the next thing for the Russians is going to be to move on to uh, the Donetsk region to the west. Uh, they are already showing signs that they're wanting to do that very quickly. There's been heavy shelling in Slovyansk, one of the main cities in that area. There have been missile strikes in Kramatorsk, and now we're also seeing signs that Russian troops are trying to move down and take some of the villages to the north uh, in Donetsk and uh, try to do that sooner rather than later. And what, more headlines coming out of the war here. We're getting reports of a school being hit in Kharkiv. What are you hearing about that? Yeah, so thankfully school is not in right now. We can also be thankful that even if it was, this strike took place at four o'clock in the morning, but the pictures here are absolutely uh, horrifying. I mean, there's a massive crater in Kharkiv at this high school. The gymnasium was apparently hit in this missile strike. Uh, even though there are no reports of any casualties, any injuries, anything like that, there are still some pretty haunting images of school or of shoes, students' shoes uh, underneath of a desk. Um, look, this comes the same day that the Russians also have accused the Ukrainians of targeting specifically civilian sites inside of Russia over the weekend. They say that, look, these strikes, these explosions in the Belgorod region of Russia were meant to or provoke the Russians toward retaliating and hitting civilian uh, areas inside of Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainians have never actually owned up to any of these strikes on Russian territory, though just the other day, an advisor to the president, uh, an advisor to the president said that evil has consequences and you always have to pay the bills. Allison. All right, Scott. Scott McLean, thanks for joining us live from Kyiv. Ukraine wants more support from NATO, and it needs the help of big business, too. The Virgin founder and chairman, Sir Richard Branson, told Richard Quest about his recent visit to the war-torn country and his meeting with President Zelensky. Listen. I wasn't surprised by uh, what I saw on the ground, horrific though it was. I mean, seeing, you know, children's playgrounds being blown up and uh, blocks of flats uh, being destroyed only th three days before I arrived. And I wasn't surprised by the, uh, the resilience of the people. Um, I mean, just just extraordinary. I think what, what surprised and worried me the most was the conversations I had with um, the, the foreign secretary and uh, uh, and President Zelensky. And, uh, and, and what that told me uh, was that uh, that Russia are going to win this war unless um, unless the West uh, really pull their finger out. You have some strong views, though, on the role that business can play on this as well. And that it, I mean, it, which has to, I think, go beyond it can't be business as usual. It's got to be um, a, a proactive part that business plays. But what is that proactive part? Oh, look, I think there's lots of things that can business can do to help. I mean, 
you know, I think there there are business people who can speak out, which which often hasn't happened in the past in in conflicts. People have they just left it to the politicians. Uh, there are businesses that have pulled out of Russia, uh, like uh, say Starbucks, who could uh, move move in and open up in Ukraine because and 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 start creating jobs. And there's business leaders who can help advise. Um, uh, Zelensky in the re- rebuilding rebuilding of Ukraine. I mean, he's asked asked if I, as a business leader, would uh, join him on an organization called United 24 to rebuild Ukraine. But all all of that is a waste of time if we if we can't just get get the NATO team to assume that Ukraine is their own country. What we've got to do is get the mindset that you know in in Britain, in America, in Germany. We are being attacked, and if we were being attacked, would we be moving as quickly as we are today? And I think the answer is no. I think we could move quicker. High gas prices aren't stopping Americans from hitting the road this holiday weekend. AAA estimates a record 42 million travelers will will get behind the wheel. Lucky for them, filling up the tank will sting a bit less than it did last week. Rahel Solomon joins us now with more. Rahel, great to see you and glad to hear that gas prices are heading lower. Is this a trend that we can expect to continue? Well, some say yes. I talked to one industry consultant who said that he actually predicts prices will be at about 470 a gallon in two weeks. That forecast coming from Andy Lipow. Let's take a look at what gas prices have been doing. So right now we're in the U.S., right about 480 per gallon. If you compare that to a week ago, 489, so some slight declines there. Compared to a month ago, about the same. But Allison, compared to a year ago, and you can understand why high gas prices is on the minds of so many here in Americans. It is proving to be uncomfortably high for many. So let's think about some of the things that have happened since a year ago. Of course, we have had very strong demand for gas that supply has not been able to keep up with or has not kept up with. And then you also, of course, had the war in Ukraine and sanctions on Russia. It would be like, Allison, if you already had a broken ankle and then you fall and you break your leg. The war in Ukraine only exacerbated the, the tightness in the oil market already, but it was it was already tight before then. All right. So I'm seeing some drama on Twitter. President Biden tweeting that gas stations should, you know, just lower their gas prices. And then we've got the founder of Amazon, you know, hitting back at the president. Uh, Jeff Bezos taking issue with the tweet. I also saw a tweet from the U.S. Oil and Gas Association saying Biden's demands. uh, They say that it came from an intern and they said that intern should go ahead and take Econ 101 in the fall. I'm paraphrasing here. Who's right? So this is not the first time that Biden and Bezos have gotten into a a Twitter spat. So let's just go through exactly what was said, and then we can talk about the kernels of truth, I think, in both sides of this argument. So President Biden sent out a tweet over the weekend uh, that you could just see on your screen there that my message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple. This is a time of war and global peril. Bring down the price you are charging. Jeff Bezos, in response, tweeted, ouch. Inflation is far too important a problem for the White House to keep making statements like this, essentially saying that this is either misdirection or a deep misunderstanding of basic market dynamics. And as you pointed out, the U.S. Oil and Gas Association saying that uh, we're working on it, Mr. President. But in the meantime, have the White House intern who posted this tweet register for Econ 101. So let's talk about the kernels of truth to both of this. As we already just discussed, Allison, 
The market was already tight before this because demand roared back faster than many expected for gas, for oil, and supply was not able to keep up. Oil producers here in the U.S. for sure say that they are trying, but that it is not a a faucet that you just turn on overnight, that it will take time. Experts say the same. That said, there is an old adage in the gas industry that oil prices at the pump go up like a rocket and come down like a feather. So there is some truth that the prices haven't come down as much as perhaps some would like. The reason and the the thinking behind that is that these small businesses that are setting prices at the pump, oil prices can be volatile. So they're concerned that if they perhaps move prices back too quickly to keep up with crude prices, well, do they have to turn them back up if oil prices go back up again? So it's a very complicated issue. The truth is there's a little bit of truth to both sides. The the reality is uh, in the middle, Allison. And something that can't be easily solved over Twitter. (laughs) Rahel Solomon, (laughs) thanks so much. Meanwhile, in Turkey, inflation hitting the highest level in 24 years. The annual rate soared to almost 80 percent in June. This after President Recep Erdogan instructed the central bank to continue to cut interest rates. Anna Stewart has the details on this. You know, it just it, this really makes you just say, ah, oh, er, you know, President Erdogan, can't you just acknowledge uh, these alternative central bank policies? They're contributing to inflation. Are we seeing any acknowledgement of this? Uh, absolutely not at this stage. But I mean, those <laughs> extraordinary inflation figures could actually have been worse. The expectation was for them to be even higher for the last month, which I think is absolutely extraordinary. Now, Turkey is no stranger to double digit inflation. It has been experiencing this phenomenon now for years and years and years. And as you said, most of this comes down to what we could term very alternative central bank policy from uh, the central bank and, of course, from President Erdogan himself. So while the rest of the world, the U.S. Federal Reserve, Europe's ECB, the U.K.'s Bank of England are all raising rates to try and cool inflation, Turkey have continually cut theirs. Um, There's also some pressure, of course, on the central bank from President Erdogan. He has fired several central bank governors and finance ministers before. So it suddenly raises the question of how independent the central bank is at this stage. Some policies were introduced uh, this year to try and prop up the Turkish lira. Let's show you how it has been trading against the dollar because it certainly hasn't been able to stave off a very sharp decline in the currency there. Uh, And all of this, of course, at a time when global inflation is now a huge problem as well. And the breakdown of the inflation figures from Turkey today just go to show that energy and food prices have really skyrocketed. So that's really compounding this issue. Alison? Certainly is. So, you know, what happens next here? Um, Erdogan keeps jacking up wages, so inflation is only heading higher, at least in the medium or short term? Yeah, this is possibly the part of the story that concerned me the most, even maybe more than the uh, whole interest rate debacle, is the fact that on Friday, Turkey's government announced that they're actually going to raise the minimum wage by 30 percent, having already done that to 50 percent earlier this year. So huge increases in the minimum wage. You can understand why the cost of living crisis must be absolutely brutal for people in Turkey. Important to remember, there is a Turkish election coming up around the corner next year. So I'm sure there's a lot of thought going into that policy there. But the issue, as we all know, if you push up wages, you push up inflation even further and it can spiral out of control. And when we look at the picture, I think, particularly in Europe with so many strikes, people desperate for higher wages. Of course, businesses are reluctant to do that, but also governments because of the issue of a wage price spiral. And I think that is exactly what you are seeing here in Turkey. Alison. All right. Anna Stewart, thanks so much. These are the stories making headlines around the world.
Police in Denmark say there is no indication a deadly mall shooting on Sunday was an act of terror. They say the 22-year-old suspect was known to psychiatric professionals and will be charged with murder. He's accused of killing at least three people and leaving four wounded in Copenhagen, where gun violence is relatively rare. CNN's Sam Kiley joins us now from Copenhagen. Sam, good to see you. Are you learning anything more about this suspect and what are you hearing about the victims? So, <clears throat> Alison, we know that uh, first the victims, uh, the, there was one Russian, Russian national uh, in his late 40s who's a resident here and two <clears throat> Danish teenagers murdered. The charges now being made against this 22-year-old Dane are of a homicide. Uh, the courts, uh, local media reporting from the courts where he's being charged are saying that the judge has ordered that he be held in a psychiatric facility for 24 days. Uh, but the police will now really be focusing very heavily on how it was possible for him to obtain the hunting weapon that he used in this shooting. He shot dead three people, wounded at least four others, and, and of course a lo lo relatively large number of other people were uh, lightly injured in the stampede that followed people trying to get out the mall that's just behind me here on the outskirts of Copenhagen. Uh, and the reason for that is it's extremely difficult to obtain a weapon in this country. You have to pass the test. You have to have the license. Uh, there are. This is not a culture like the United States where guy, guns are, are widely available. Uh, he did not have a gun license and also was already known to the medical authorities through his uh, psychiatric treatment. Now, we don't know the details on his previous uh, mental health state, but clearly uh, the court decision to detain him in a psychiatric facility while he is undergoing uh, scrutiny there is an indication that they certainly believe that there was some kind of mental illness that came into play here. The police also saying that they do not believe that this was an act of terror, it wasn't an act of hate crime, it wasn't gender-based or racial, it was random, and it is the randomness that is really deeply affecting people in this country that is not in any way used, Alison, to the levels of violence uh, that have been seen in the United States or even elsewhere in Europe following uh, terrorist attacks, Alison. Yeah, stricter gun policies uh, could be the reason for the surprise there. Sam Kiley in Copenhagen, thanks so much. Rescue crews are searching for survivors in the Italian Alps after a chunk of glacier ice crashed into a group of hikers. At least six people were killed on Sunday and a dozen are still missing, according to CNN affiliate Sky TG24. It comes as a record-breaking heat wave sweeps parts of Europe. Stay with CNN. Just ahead, I'm joined by a Ukrainian CEO turned military commander. We'll discuss the latest developments in the war. And later, saving the bees. The insects are key to our survival, but they're disappearing at an alarming rate. The tech innovation that could save them. Welcome back. I'm Alison Kosick, and back to our one of our top stories. Russian President Vladimir Putin is praising his military victory in Luhansk. Over the weekend, Ukrainian forces withdrew from the last contested city in the region. There are now concerns in Ukraine that Russian forces will soon push into the neighboring Donetsk region. On top of this, fears are growing of a major hunger crisis as the war decimates Ukraine's ability to export grain. 
For more on this, I'm joined by Sevalad Kosimyeko. He's the CEO of AgroTrade. It's one of Ukraine's largest grain exporting companies, but he's currently on leave to serve in the Ukrainian military. Welcome from Ukraine. <laughs> Hello. Hi there. I want to talk about what brought you to join the fight. But first, I want to ask you about a headline that we talked about earlier in the show about uh, Ukraine losing Lysychansk. It's now under Russian control. And I want to get your opinion about the significance of this loss. Is this just a battle loss or is there bigger symbolism here about how the war is actually going for Ukraine? I think that this is battle loss and this is quite tactical uh, for the troops. Uh, it's important to to save lives of the people. And uh, we all are actually waiting for more Western weapon to, to fight back. How do you think it's going for Ukraine, though? Uh, look, uh, if we come back uh, uh, for months, everybody was expecting probably in the world that that's going to be like five or seven days war. But now uh, we are forgetting that Ukraine is uh, actually defending. Ukrainians are defending the country for more than four months already and uh, mm, do it quite successfully. Uh, of course, the Ukrainian army is uh, much smaller and the country is much smaller than Russia, but uh, uh, with the help of our uh, of our partners from the West, we, we are acting, we are looking quite good, I think. Let's talk about you. You know, many billionaires, they, you know, spend their money on fancy sports cars and clothes and luxury vacations. Not to say you don't, you probably do on your off time. Um, but you went ahead and, and bought your own weapons here. You trained others to create your own fully funded volunteer battalion here. Talk me through why you gave up time in your company. You left four kids behind. Why do this? Why is it important for you to, you know, fund and train this battalion after Russian forces invaded Ukraine? Uh, I just try to I just try to do my best uh, in all the areas where I can help my my country. Starting from 14, I was uh, supporting the army and the the National Guard units. So I have wide network action. People uh, recognize me as a kind of a leader. So as soon as uh, the war started, actually I was planning. I am this, and uh, people just joined me, and we started uh, as a team. We started to move uh, forward uh, to proceed in this uh, creating of the unit. Uh, we have uh, the, it's funded by me and some other businessmen, but we have the ambition, you know, to to make the unit which will be. Uh, fully organized uh, and ruled according to NATO standards. And uh, uh, we uh, hope that uh, people who are in the units We're having a little trouble with your audio. Um, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to come out of the interview. But I want to thank you for your time. And for your service here, uh, Sevalad uh, Kozhevnyenko, mm -hmm. thank you.
thank you so much um, yeah, for coming no on problem. the show. CEO of Agritrade and now a military commander on the front lines in Ukraine. Ukrainian troops fighting on the front lines know there's always someone who has their back, with groups of civilian volunteers helping deliver crucial supplies. And along the way, they also give a helping hand to some of man's best friends. Ben Weedman has the story. Yulia and her friends are loading up their armored van. Food, medicine, water for frontline villages. That and protective gear for the troops. Before the war, Yulia was a model and worked in local government. Now she's a volunteer. I didn't consider leaving as an option, she says. Of course, I'm staying in my country to help as much as possible. During a drive back from the front in May, Yulia was badly injured when her truck crashed under shelling. She spent two restless months in hospital. They were holding me in hospital and I told them I have work to do, she recalls. I was coordinating deliveries on the phone. I had no right to sit on my hands. First stop on this day, a military position by the road. All of this has been donated by people in Ukraine. Here, the troops offer a quick appraisal of world leaders. Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson. <laughs> what about Biden? Joe Biden. Joe Biden, yes. <laughs> Joe Biden. Olaf Scholz. Scholz, Scholz. The next stop, a village perilously close to the fighting. They have to hand out the aid as quickly as possible because they don't want people to get together because we're just a few kilometers from Russian lines. Spirits here still buoyant. I stayed because of the animals, Natasha tells me. I'm responsible for all the abandoned animals on this street. More than 50 cats and around 20 dogs. At our final stop, they drop off more supplies for the soldiers and feed stray dogs. They had planned to evacuate a family fleeing from behind Russian lines, but they didn't show up. The soldiers here say overnight there was heavy shelling. Russian drones often on the prowl overhead. My mind tells me I should be afraid, says Yulia, but we can't leave them behind. Then is a dog and two litters of puppies born in the trenches. One of the mother dogs was killed by Russian artillery, the little ones, orphans. Once loaded, we're off to the city of Zaporizhia. We're out of the danger zone. Once we get to the city, they'll take the mother, who's been injured in a blast, to a vet. They found homes for some of these puppies, but not all. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Zaporizhia, southern Ukraine. And stay with us. More coming after the break. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. While it's Independence Day here in the United States, many airline passengers are feeling anything but independent. That's because they're at the mercy of overwhelmed airlines. More than 1,500 flights were canceled between Friday and Sunday, as well as rampant staffing shortages, bad weather. That's added to the problems as well. 
Storms in the U.S. Northeast have delayed thousands of flights. CNN's Nadia Romero is live for us at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. I tell you what, I hear about flights canceled, passengers stranded, the highest travel numbers we've seen in, in years. My head is starting to pound and I'm not even traveling, Nadia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's unfortunate because when we arrived bright and early this morning, up on the second level, we saw people curled up under their coats and their sweaters and whatever they had with them in their bags because they had to spend the night here, likely because their flight was delayed or canceled. Things are moving, though, uh, rather smoothly. If you do still have your flight, this is the TSA checkpoint area behind me, and there are three different areas for travelers to come in. And you can see that they're making a nice little stroll as they head up towards the check-in counter, um, but they do still have to go through many of the rows, but there are plenty of staff members here that are wearing very festive hats, trying to keep a smile on their face and encouraging people to go through the line quickly because, as you mentioned, Allison, there are a lot of people who haven't traveled since before the pandemic, and they may not remember exactly what to do, and you have a lot of people with families, and so there have been a lot of people with questions. Let's take a look at the numbers from the TSA releasing um, what their travel numbers have been. So Thursday, we saw about 2.4 million passengers make their way through. Friday, Friday, though, two and a half million. That's the highest point since before the pandemic, since February 2020. Then that number went down Saturday to 2.2 million and then down again yesterday on Sunday to 2.1 million travelers. And we would expect that number to go down a little bit more today, just judging what we've seen here and what is the busiest airport and the fact that a lot of people don't like to travel on the actual holiday. But we spoke with a woman who had spent 10 days in London, had a fabulous trip, and she was just trying to get back to Cincinnati. And then this happened. So I flew in last night from London. I waited an hour to drop off my bag, another hour in security. Um, my flight from Orlando was delayed twice. I ended up having to spend the night for free, obviously, um, in Atlanta when I'm trying to get home to Cincinnati. So I spent 22 hours traveling to have two delayed flights and stay where my final destination is not. So I fly pretty frequently. And I've never seen it so crazy. So that was Megan there. She is a school teacher here in the U.S. And she says she knows how to wake up bright and early, put a smile on her face. So she's trying to remember that she just had a fabulous trip in London. Despite all of her travel delays, she was able to get a, a free hotel from the airport because of her delays. So she spent the night here in Atlanta up bright and early again this morning, hoping to get back to Cincinnati and have some sort of holiday with her family here. Uh, but Allison, everyone who's traveling is going to be doing so by pulling more money out of their pocketbooks. Let's look at the travel costs to, to go this holiday weekend compared to just last year. Uh, airfare is up 14%. Hotels, that's going to cost you an extra 23% compared to last year. And then gas prices, yeah, remember that? 52% more expensive this year than it was last July 4th weekend. But all of the travelers I spoke to said to me two things. One, they wanted to just get out and enjoy, to have a break from work and just enjoy the holiday weekend. Or there are people who just haven't traveled because of the pandemic. And now many cities, many places are back to normal. And they wanted to experience that again with their family and friends. Go out in crowds, watch fireworks, and just have a nice time. Allison. Yeah, first of all, I love that woman you interviewed, her positivity. And I get it that there's a lot of pent-up demand, so we're seeing a huge demand for travel. Any sign of that abating at all, especially as we see uh, ticket prices rising, not just ticket prices, but you know, hotels and, and everything else along the way when you take a vacation? 
Yeah, everything is up. The only thing that's down a little bit is car rentals. So it's down compared to last year, um, your daily rate, but it's still up compared to 2019. So if you haven't traveled in the past couple of years or you're renting a car, you're going to notice that difference. Uh, we still expect, if you talk to travel experts, that tomorrow, Tuesday, will be a pretty hectic day here at the airport because that's when people are going to be coming back. Uh, the majority, though, of people are going to be in their cars. So maybe they were trying to avoid that increase that we've seen in airfare by hopping in their car. Uh, most Americans, about 88% of Americans who are going to travel will travel by car. 42 million are expected to travel 50 miles or more. So they're trying to avoid getting on a flight, but it's not going to cost you any less than it did last year. It's going to cost you a lot more because of gas prices, because of car rental prices. And when you get somewhere and you want to get something to eat, well, inflation, I mean, the, the cost to get anything to eat at a grocery store or to go to a restaurant, that's up as well. Uh, but people are just trying to roll with the punches because no one wants to go back to lockdowns. No one wants to go back to that. So if it means they have to dig a little bit deeper in their pockets, they're willing to do that. Allison. Yes, they are. Nadia Romero, thanks so much. Great reporting. And be sure to catch CNN's special coverage of The Fourth in America. It begins at 4 p.m. in Los Angeles, 7 p.m. in Washington and New York. That's 12 a.m. Tuesday in London. Australian authorities are working on a rescue plan for a stranded cargo ship off Australia's eastern coast. The 21-person crew lost power amid torrential rains around New South Wales. Officials say they're looking to evacuate them by helicopter. Meanwhile, at least one person has died and thousands are being urged to evacuate in Sydney from those heavy rains. CNN's Michael Holmes has more. A life-threatening emergency. That's how one official in New South Wales describes the rising floodwaters in parts of Australia's biggest city. We are now facing dangers on multiple fronts. Flash flooding, riverine flooding and coastal erosion. Thousands of residents were ordered to evacuate parts of Sydney where heavy rain is already hitting with more expected to come in the next few days. Authorities say the situation is rapidly evolving and urge people to stay off the roads. The state emergency service says it has responded to more than 3,000 emergency requests already and dozens of rescue squads have been dispatched. The level of the dams, there's no room for the water to, to remain in the dams. They are starting to spill. The rivers are flowing very fast and very dangerous. New South Wales gearing up for the deteriorating conditions, the state asking the federal government to send helicopters and troops to help with rescue efforts and sandbagging. Weather experts warn landslides could happen, the landscape already vulnerable because of previous floods in the region. In some areas, emergency crews are even ferrying livestock to drier grounds, the bigger animals like these ponies, an additional challenge for rescue workers. Feels really good to be able to achieve uh, achieve a rescue and, and bring everyone back to, to land safely. With some parts of Sydney experiencing downpours of more than 200 millimetres, with some places up to 350 millimetres, missions like this for animals and humans alike could become more critical in the hours ahead. Michael Holmes, CNN. And we'll be back right after the break. A Hong Kong lawmaker photographed near Chinese President Xi Jinping has tested positive for COVID-19. President Xi visited the city last week during the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover from Britain to China. It was his first trip outside the mainland since the start of the pandemic. He joined lawmakers for photos commemorating the event. The person who tested positive says his test was negative on Thursday when the photos were taken. 
New fallout from the vicious attack on women caught on camera last month in China. The beating set off a firestorm of reaction. CNN's Selena Wang reports on the stepped-up police response. And we want to warn you, the following video contains some disturbing images. This brutal attack on women at a restaurant in northern China last month triggered nationwide rage and despair. And this is how the government is reacting to the incident in Tangshan City, amassing an army of police to crack down on crime, sending brigades of armed police to patrol the streets at night, going into bars, restaurants, outdoor food markets, interrupting groups eating outside with loudspeakers, telling men, no fighting, no beating, especially of women. SWAT teams hovering over women without male companions, Women on Chinese social media mocked the excessive show of force. One wrote, This is just for show. It doesn't solve any real problems. Another said, We don't need men's protection. What we need is a safer and fairer society. The graphic surveillance video from last month shows a man making an unwanted advance towards a woman. After she pushes him away, the assault escalates into shocking brutality, with multiple men kicking and beating the women with bottles and chairs. This is believed to be an image of one of the two women who was hospitalized after the attack. Authorities claim the two women are still in the hospital, recovering from, quote, minor injuries, denying rumors that some of the women died. Police arrested all nine people involved in the attack. Several of them had criminal histories. Victims of criminal activity in Tangsen seized the moment to flood the local police station. This man says he's 86 years old and has been waiting in line for hours. This man says it's been seven years since he reported his case, but still no progress. They hope the national attention will pressure police to solve their long-ignored cases. Online, people rush to do the same, holding up their ID cards to prove the authenticity of their claims and call out their perpetrators' names. This man says, friends on the internet, please uphold justice for me. Another woman shared footage of her boyfriend violently attacking her when she was seven months pregnant, pinning her down in an attempt, she says, to kill her baby. Another says gang members broke into his bakery a year ago. He shows surveillance footage of them destroying his shop. He says the criminals have been harassing him and his family ever since. This woman, a bar singer, says in May, gang members beat her and her colleagues and locked them in a cage for 16 hours. Police say they are investigating all three of those cases. State media says gangsters and drunken men are to blame for the restaurant attack. While reports linking the case to sexism or systemic violence against women have been swiftly censored. By framing this incident as a single incident that's that's merely gang violence, the government avoided the problems within their system. This is the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other incidents they're happening every day. Chinese women are actually demanding a systemic change. In recent years, authorities have tried to stamp out feminist voices, seeing them as threats to social stability. As police parade across the country to show they're taking crime seriously, the government squashes outrage over sexual harassment and gender-based violence. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. 
after the break. It's a beehive, but not as we know it. Without these furry friends, the world's food supply is jeopardized. Now one startup is building them high-tech homes to combat dwindling numbers. That's next. Imagine a world without coffee, avocados, berries, and apples. So much of the global food supply relies on one species, the bee. Back in 2019, the Earthwatch Institute declared the bee to be the most important living thing on Earth. And the Science Times says 70% of the world's agriculture depends exclusively on bees. And yet, the uncontrolled use of pesticides, deforestation, and and a lack of flowers means the bee population has declined by 90% in the last few years. My next guest is an Israeli startup called BeeWise, which is trying to save those that remain using modern AI technology to build beehives in a way that helps their population thrive. Sar Safra is the CEO. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, the first thing that came to mind was, aren't you playing with Mother Nature here? Why do the bees need help? Talk with me how this robotic beehive works to save the bees with their hives. Unfortunately, we are playing with Mother Nature. We humans, I mean, climate change is something we can take full credit for. And so the bees populations are collapsing. They have been in the last 40 years. What is sometimes referred to as colony collapse disorder, we see a 35% colony collapse of all bees around the globe every year, year over year. So this is real, this is happening. It's happening now, not in 50 or 100 years. And so something has to be done. So if we're talking about, you know, manipulating Mother Nature, humans are already doing it. So we have to respond in some way. And the way we're responding is by providing the bees, think of it as a tool set to cope with modern stressors. What we essentially did is we rebuilt the modern hive. Now, the the hives you see in the fields today, those wooden boxes, you know, they're A, they're 150 years old, and B, They're not the natural habitat of the bees. They're also man-made. So we're not really changing anything that Mother Nature created. All we're doing is taking those 150-year-old wooden boxes and we're providing a better box, a smarter box, a beehive that can actually respond to all the stressors that the bees are experiencing and allow them not only to survive, but to thrive. And we talked about this um, at the beginning before we introduced you about how important bees are to our global food supply and not just to make honey. I mean, these are fascinating, cre- fascinating creatures, these honeybees. You know, they've got five eyes, two stomachs, and they're responsible for a whole lot more than just honey. You know, it's pretty simple, right? If you take two flowers, the male pollen has to get to the female pollen so that there's a, it, it results in a fruit or a vegetable. It's a pretty similar thing like we humans do. And the bee is Mother Nature's response to move that pollen from the female flower to the, to the male flower. It's a pretty simple mechanism. It's very complex, but just intuitively it's simple. And there's no other way to do it. So if you don't have that mule, that, that, that entity that moves the pollen, you're not going to have fruit and vegetables. Essentially, 70% of all the fruit and vegetables on this planet are pollinated by bees. The, the honey is a, is, is a byproduct, if you will. It's important and we value it, but the, the, the strategic component of the bees is our global food supply. 
Yeah, I mean, these hives, I would imagine, help to increase productivity for these bees and increase their, um, the likelihood that they're going to stay alive. It's a pretty simple equation. If you don't lose the bees as much, you're much more productive. So in our hives, instead of seeing 35% colony collapse, which is what we see in the fields, again, from China to the U.S. and everything in between, it's a global pandemic, if you will. In our hives, you see less than 8%. We experience less than 8% colony collapse, which means there's about 25 plus percent of colonies which are families of bees that don't collapse, don't die. And so they do what they do best. They pollinate and they produce honey. So just by the sheer fact of keeping bees alive, aside from the impact on our planet, it also provides a much more productive ecosystem and a much healthier biodiversity because there's just more bees that can actually go out there and pollinate. Who is using these uh, robotic beehives? Um, companies, farmers, are they available globally? What's demand like for these devices? Demand is incredible because, again, think about it. Until today, there was actually no technology on the planet that was specifically geared towards saving bees. I mean, there were a lot of tries and a lot of experiments, but nothing was actually, uh, nothing resulted in a scalable solution. Because we have a robotic beehive, it doesn't involve humans, so all you have to do is basically just print them out, right? Manufacture as many as you can, throw them in the field, and have the bees live in them. And so our customers today are global farmers, beekeepers, uh, ag companies that care about their crops, both small, medium, and large. And the demand is incredible. Today, we're actually the constraint because of global uh, supply chain issues. We can't actually deliver enough devices and you asked a very smart question because it's not about what the device does. It's about how quickly can you scale to actually, we're in a race. Who gets to the point of no return first? If we can get there before the bees die out, we'll be safe. If we don't do that fast enough, um, we're, in a, we're in a bind. All right. Sar Safra, a CEO of, of this great company that is um, helping uh, bees, which many people just have a love-hate relationship with. You know, we hate the way they sting, but we need their food. Thanks so much for your time. Thank and you that's for it for me. the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you soon. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.